This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., And I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. Due to the graphic nature of the content in this podcast, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of death that some people may find disturbing. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Hi, I'm Greg Polson, and this is Cults. Today we're taking a trip to Russia in order to investigate a highly unusual doomsday cult, the true Russian Orthodox Church. I'm here with my co-host, Vanessa Richardson. Hi, everyone. We'd like to ask a quick favor. Would you leave a five-star review of Cults on your favorite podcast directory? It seems so simple, but it really helps us out. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there, because a new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, and on Twitter at Parcast Network. Today, we're covering Pyotr Kuznetsov and the True Russian Orthodox Church, not to be confused with the Russian True Orthodox Church, which separated from the Russian Orthodox Church during the Communist era. The True Russian Orthodox Church caught international press attention on November 16, 2007, when between 29 and 35 cult members buried themselves in a man-made cave. The cult members had dug out an apocalypse bunker near Nikolskoye village in the remote Penza region of Russia, about 400 miles southeast of Moscow. For six months, they refused to come out, and by the end of their time underground, two members were dead. The cult's leader was a 43-year-old former civil engineer named Pyotr Kuznetsov. He was of average height, skinny, brown-haired and bearded, blue-eyed, but not particularly handsome or charismatic. In the early 2000s, Kuznetsov began writing his own religious manifestos. In these books, he borrowed many mainstream beliefs from the traditional Russian Orthodox Church. But he also claimed that government-issued passports and taxpayer identification contained signs of the devil. He convinced his followers to cut themselves off from society, burn their passports, and stop using credit cards, and even stop eating processed food. He also claimed to be a prophet of God and traveled all over Russia, Belarus and Ukraine trying to gain followers. Incredibly, he amassed dozens of followers who believed his prediction that the end of the world was coming on May 28, 2008. The cult no longer operates. As Kuznetsov was arrested after the dramatic events of 2007 and 2008 and diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic, as far as we know, is still under state-supervised psychiatric care. Let's set the stage for Kuznetsov and the true Russian Orthodox Church. In December of 1991, the Soviet Union collapsed into 15 separate countries. The end of this superpower mesmerized the world. 
How would the Russian people move forward? What ideologies would take root now? Vanessa is going to take the lead on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she's done a lot of research for the show. Thanks, Greg. Remember, the USSR was a totalitarian, centralized economic and political system. The state-sanctioned communist philosophy of Karl Marx famously said, quote, Religious suffering is, at one and the same time, the expression of real suffering and a protest against real suffering. Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, and the soul of soulless conditions. It is the opium of the people, end quote. Soviet policy towards religion was to suppress and eliminate. But now, post-USSR, Russians finally had the freedom to believe in religion. After decades of state-enforced atheism, interest in religion exploded across the Russian Federation and the ex-Soviet nations. Russia's long-standing traditional religion, the Russian Orthodox Church, rapidly expanded, building more than 20,000 new monasteries in the years following the collapse of the Soviet Union. Russians also joined foreign faiths, like the Jehovah's Witnesses and Church of Latter-day Saints, and brand new religious sects. With this religious explosion in the early 1990s, the new Russian government became very concerned over Russians' religious freedom and how it would influence citizens. One particularly concerning new sect was the destructive cult Om Shinrikyo, who you may remember from our previous episodes on the subject. Om Shinrikyo caught the world's attention with the Tokyo subway sarin attack in 1995 and established influence in Moscow and St. Petersburg in the mid-1990s. To deal with this expansion of religions, new religious movements, and cults, the Russian state Duma passed a bill to restrict religious organizations in 1997. The bill was somewhat ironically called On Freedom of Consciousness and on Religious Associations. Yet President Boris Yeltsin signed the bill, saying that he felt it was necessary to defend the moral and spiritual health of Russia against destructive cults like Om Shinrikyo. But of course, this bill didn't work, partly because it sought to control too many religions. The bill affirmed the special status that the Russian Orthodox Church held as the preeminent religion in Russia. A new traditional religions status was bestowed on Buddhism, Islam, and Judaism. Interestingly, other mainline faiths like Roman Catholicism and Evangelical and Pentecostal Protestant Christianity were more tightly controlled. The U.S. Department of State's International Religious Freedom Report of 2002 explains why. Quote, The 1997 religion law ostensibly targeted so-called totalitarian sects or dangerous religious cults, However, the intent of some of the law's sponsors appears to have been to discriminate against members of foreign and less established religions by making it difficult for them to manifest their beliefs through organized religious institutions, end quote. But despite the Russian government's attempts to restrict its citizens' religious beliefs, many were determined to seek out new religions. And the populace's eagerness to embrace fresh religious perspectives enabled Pyotr Kuznetsov, to draw seekers into his dangerous and deadly cult. Pyotr Kuznetsov, the leader of the radical Izni Pravoslavnoi Penza sect, or the True Russian Orthodox Church, was born in 1964 in the small village of Poganovka in the Bekovskova district of the Penza region. The area was poor at the time, with in-home electricity still a luxury only afforded to the upper class, 
Not much is known about his family or upbringing, except that they were religious and attended services at the Russian Orthodox Church. As you might have guessed from its name, the true Russian Orthodox Church had its roots in the mainstream religion of Russia. The official Russian Orthodox Church is a large, highly organized Christian religion, which claims jurisdiction over any Christian living within the former republics of the USSR. The church's origin is commonly believed to have been the Apostle Andrew, who is said to have reached Kiev and started a community there. Princess Olga of Kiev converted to Christianity in 945, and her grandson Vladimir the Great made Byzantine Rite Christianity the official religion. The Russian Orthodox Church belongs to the Eastern Orthodox Church, which believes that the Bible is the Word of God and that Jesus Christ is God the Son. Its services are similar to Roman Catholic liturgies, and Mary, the Mother of God, has an elevated worship status. Use of sacred and revered images, or icons, is common, and the Church believes that salvation is earned through the observance of the sacraments, not just by faith in Jesus Christ. Like the Roman Catholic Church, the Russian Orthodox Church has a complicated bureaucracy consisting of archbishops, bishops, cardinals, monks, priests, and nuns, and they consider the decisions of their church councils to be law. Before World War I, there were about 54,000 Russian Orthodox churches in the Soviet Union. But by 1975, they were down to about 7,000. Though Russian Orthodoxy wasn't illegal, the government discouraged people from practicing and attempted to control the religion, even setting up KGB agents as clergy. This tense religious atmosphere certainly influenced Kuznetsov as he grew up during the 1960s and 70s. However, the teachings of the Russian Orthodox Church clearly stuck, since Kuznetsov's cult was an extremist offshoot of the religion. The Russian Orthodox Church and many other religions survived Soviet control. And in 2007, approximately 100 million Russian citizens considered themselves Russian Orthodox Christians. Impressive since the population at the time was about 143 million. However, the vast majority were only occasional churchgoers. The Russian Orthodox Church still struggled to overcome the influence of Soviet policies. So part of the minority of fervent believers diverged from mainline religious denominations into unique and unusual sects and cults like the true Russian Orthodox Church. Despite the Russian governments and the Russian Orthodox Church's efforts, cults became very popular with citizens who felt exhausted by corruption, ethnic violence, terrorism, and the disappearance of a moral code. Maria Lipman of the Carnegie Center for International Peace in Moscow said, quote, the country's president and prime minister often contradict each other. Russians feel lost, searching for any definite truth. End quote. According to author Lowell D. Stryker, who's written multiple books on cults, it was the perfect atmosphere for a cult to arise. Stryker writes in his book, The Cults Are Coming, that, in the past, individuals and societies have been most susceptible to religious experience during periods of scarcity, uncertainty, hopelessness, and boredom. When there is great want and frustration, men and women will turn to powers greater than themselves for aid and comfort. When established values break down and the future appears threatening, they will likewise turn away from all that they associate with suffering and anxiety and turn toward anyone or anything that seems to offer a way of escape." End quote. And Kuznetsov offered his followers escape, first via an extreme lifestyle change and then quite literally into an underground bunker. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. 
Let's take a look at Kuznetsov's journey to starting a cult. In his 20s, Kuznetsov graduated from the Pensa Civil Engineering Institute and worked in the Prensa Grajdan Pryakt. Mikhail Chernov, a local reporter, wrote that Kuznetsov had two higher education degrees and was a certified civil engineer. Kuznetsov married and in 1989 had a son, Alexei Kuznetsov. By 1997, his marriage ended, and Kuznetsov left his wife and son and returned to his hometown, the village of Paganovka. Unfortunately, there's very little information available about Kuznetsov, and at this point he disappeared from records. He didn't pop up again until 2004. All we know is that during this interval, he moved from Paganovka to Bukovska, because in 2004, Kuznetsov asked the Archbishop of the Russian Orthodox Church for permission to build a chapel in Bukovska, where he was living at the time. But the church rejected him. Later on, when this became public knowledge, the diocese refused to comment. The Russian Orthodox Church may not have wanted a chapel built in the small town of Bekovskom for any number of reasons, but Kuznetsov may have taken this personally. Perhaps Kuznetsov wasn't able to handle this rejection by the mainstream religion that he had believed in all of his life. And perhaps Kuznetsov took this rejection a step further in a separation from the mainstream church's beliefs. Though he was a certified civil engineer, he quit his job and became a monk alternately calling himself Brother Maxim and Father Piotr as he traveled around Ukraine. He began writing books filled with his ideas about religion. Kuznetsov's writing borrowed from a mixture of established religious beliefs, but were later deemed full of extremist, hateful ideas regarding other religions and countries. So his books have been destroyed by Russian authorities. While it's good that Kuznetsov's hateful views aren't spreading, it is unfortunate from an analytical perspective, as there's so little information about Pyotr Kuznetsov available to begin with, and we've lost the most direct window into how his mind worked. Given what his book spawned, I'm going to say it's best they were destroyed. As he synthesized his thoughts into books, Kuznetsov visited monasteries in Russia and Belarus to recruit followers. How did he get these people to follow him? We don't know the specific details of Kuznetsov's manifestos or recruitment tactics, but we do know his writing contained messages that strongly resonated with his followers. That messaging included his doomsday predictions. Kuznetsov promised them that in the afterlife, they would be judges and would get to decide who went to heaven or hell. I see. He was promising people who'd been powerless and oppressed under Soviet Union leadership a chance to have power and feel important. Kuznetsov tied his role as a prophet and his doomsday predictions to codes and numbers. One of the cult members, Nikolai Ponedelnik, gushed that Kuznetsov, quote, is a very wise man. He interprets the Bible so well that we believe he's a prophet. To believe in doomsday, you have to understand the meaning of the codes and the numbers, end quote. Human behavior expert Joe Navarro, who spent years studying cult leaders for the FBI, writes that cult leaders are typically boastful of intelligence and accomplishments, and also often provide magical solutions to problems. It appears that Kuznetsov was doing both of those here. Yes, Kuznetsov was positioning himself as smarter than his followers. He was claiming to have wisdom greater than normal people. Kuznetsov, with his two college degrees, was likely the most educated person in the true Russian Orthodox Church, and he lorded it over his followers. 
Based on Nikolai's account, the numerology Kuznetsov preached was seen as wisdom, but it sounds like, with all his trust in unrelated biblical numbers, he might actually have been exhibiting apophenia. Apophenia is when a mentally ill individual finds significance and deeper meaning in random and unrelated events. If Kuznetsov believed the doomsday numerology he was preaching, this might have been an early sign of his schizophrenia. But because Kuznetsov was intelligent and presented himself as a wise man, he was able to convince followers to believe in his apophenic delusion. Right. One more thing to note. Kuznetsov was traveling all around Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus seeking followers. By casting such a wide net, he was more likely to find people who would follow him. Right. It's less surprising that he was able to recruit about 30 followers when you consider the sheer number of people he must have shared his ideas with. Our story will continue in a moment after the break. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now, back to cults. In 2007, Pyotr Kuznetsov reunited with his son, who accompanied him on several trips to Belarus. This is only known from official records because they were detained for lack of documentation. Belarusian police asked Russia to identify the citizenship of the detained Kuznetsovs, but receiving no timely response, deported the Kuznetsovs from Belarus. Kuznetsov had been neglected by his own church and now by his own government. This may have added fuel to the fire for Kuznetsov. If there's anything we've learned here on cults, it's that people who love to manipulate and control other people usually start out feeling powerless and dominated themselves. After his deportation from Belarus, Kuznetsov gathered his followers from abroad and returned to his village. They started living together and opened a communal prayer room. Kuznetsov soon had visitors coming from Belarus and Ukraine to see him. They converted to this way of living and settled both in Poganovka and the nearby village of St. Nicholas, or Nikolskoye, a forest hamlet near the Volga River. The cult members believed that Kuznetsov was a prophet who would save them from the coming apocalypse. And if they obeyed his ascetic teachings, they would eventually become spiritual leaders themselves. According to Poganovka village residents, the cult erected a large wooden cross where they prayed. They never allowed their children to attend school. They also strangely never seemed to have jobs. Somehow they were able to pay for the bare necessities to live communally in five houses in the village of Nikolskoye. Apparently, all they did was pray and wait for the apocalypse. But soon, what seemed to be a harmless group of fervent Christians hiding out in a tiny Russian village became a problem. Kuznetsov forbade his followers a growing list of modern conveniences in order to save them from the mark of the beast. No television, no radio, no use of money, including credit cards, no consuming of processed food, no handling of barcoded products, no possession of passports, or indeed any form of government identification. They could not use any items that had a barcode on it, because 666, the mark of the beast, was hidden within. The cult members later said that they were told that ID chips, mobile phones, and any electronic devices that emit electromagnetic waves were evil and from the devil. 
Kuznetsov critiqued the society that he saw around him, and he offered his followers a simpler, purer life. However, beneath this simple life lurked something darker, milieu control. His cult not only separated themselves from their mainstream church and civil responsibilities of the state, but from their own families. He cut off his followers from their relatives and the outside world by announcing that they were under a vow of silence. With no contact with the outside world, members of the cult could only get their information from Kuznetsov, which resulted in subtle brainwashing. Of course, these vows of silence meant that Kuznetsov didn't have to speak much or share information about himself now that he was constantly surrounded by his followers. This way, he maintained an aura of mystery, keeping his followers and us wondering. We aren't the only ones wondering what exactly was going on. Apparently, curious local villagers spread rumors because Kuznetsov and his followers were so secretive. At this point in 2007, Kuznetsov believed that he was no longer just a simple religious man, but was hearing messages about the apocalypse from God himself, which only drew his followers in closer. What makes apocalyptic predictions so appealing? Cults grow where the populace experiences high levels of stress and fight-or-flight responses. The fatalistic attitude of people who have a history of traumatic experiences would be validated by having a shared destiny of death and destruction. Neuroscientist Shmuel Lisek lays the foundation for the concept of doomsday, fear. He says, quote, the initial response to any hint of alarm is fear. This is the architecture with which we're built, end quote. In a study with the National Institute of Mental Health, Lisek found that if a painful shock is predictable, we relax. He says, quote, apocalyptic beliefs make existential threats, the fear of our mortality, predictable, end quote. So knowing that the world is coming to an end actually becomes reassuring. Kuznetsov would eventually be diagnosed a paranoid schizophrenic. Perhaps he felt that life was so bad that the end of the world would seem like a relief. That makes sense. But did his followers feel the same way? It seems like it. The trait linking them all may have been suffering from the feeling of powerlessness in the face of a corrupt government. Kuznetsov could have easily taken their mistrust and authority to the next level by claiming he had knowledge that mainstream religious leaders did not. He could give them certainty in an uncertain world. Playing into this, Kuznetsov claimed that villagers started harassing his followers. He complained that, quote, local drunks beat up our men and swore at our women. Then God showed us the only path to move underground, end quote. Kuznetsov's feelings of persecution from the local villagers fed into his growing paranoia and his untreated schizophrenia. And that is when he began to dream of seeking a safety beneath the earth. According to Sergei Nidagon, who later became the second in command of the cult, Kuznetsov said, quote, The Lord had told him we should build a large pit so we could live in it winter and summer, end quote. Under Kuznetsov's direction, the 30 or so cult members started excavating a cave system in a ravine near Nikolskoya in the summer of 2007. Over a month and a half, they dug out an underground shelter. The cult members were dedicated, often working nights to keep progress quick. After all, they were on a deadline. They believed the world would end in less than a year, on May 28, 2008. Sergei claimed that starting in June, he began digging two other caves in the forest. The cult had initially intended to hollow out 15 rooms underground that could fit two or three people each. However, only one of the dugouts had a roof and was fit for habitation. In addition to digging the cave, they began purchasing supplies. 
gas, kerosene, honey, and jam. As the apocalypse bunker progressed, more money was needed. Local resident Boris Danilov reported to the press that Kuznetsov, quote, took their money. Many of them sold their flats, unquote. The cult used money gained from selling a house owned by Sergei's father, Vitaly Nidagon. Kuznetsov bragged, quote, God gave us cover and angels helped us. The tunnel is 50 meters in length and the height of a man, end quote. The cave was in the shape of a rough circle, with five small cells indented into the walls, with one large room set aside for prayers. On November 7, 2007, cult members descended into their underground cave to await the apocalypse. The true Russian Orthodox Church's self-burial was discovered on November 16th, 11 days after they went underground. By the time local villagers informed the authorities about what Kuznetsov's followers had done, the cult was barricaded in the cave. And here's the oddest part. The cult members had gone underground without their leader, who had chosen to stay above ground. They claimed to have about 100 gallons of gas canisters with them that they would detonate if authorities tried to remove them. The world was fascinated, watching as Russian authorities attempted to reason with them. The cultists who've hidden in a cave they've dug near Penza, 400 miles southeast of Moscow, believe that the end of the world will occur this spring. The people in the cave include children as young as 18 months and are followers of the so-called True Russian Orthodox Church, which reports say is a small sect led by Pyotr Kovnetsov. They're claiming to have gas canisters they'll blow up if authorities try to force them out. A police officer in Poganovka village, where the cult is hiding, said when contact was made, the cultists only had one request, to be left alone because they wanted to pray underground. Roger Kaplinsky, London. Regional administration spokesman Yevgeny Gusenov told CNN that the authorities believed that the cult members would ignite the canisters and commit mass suicide if anyone tried to force them out. An emergency 24-hour operation was established in nearby Nikolskoya village, incorporating teams of local police, officers from the Russian Ministry for Emergency Situations, and medical staff. Soon another cult member, Valery Metchev, arrived at the scene, but he was too late to join those underground. Metchev showed Russia today his old passport. He told reporters that he refused the new microchip version due to the cult's belief that modern technology was the work of the devil. Metchev came to Nikolskoya on pilgrimage to pay his respects. He said, quote, to find God down there means they've completed their mission in life. Those people understand the importance of seeking the spiritual truth. They may be underground, but they're saving themselves from the underworld. I admire them." End quote. But while the cult members believed that they were saving themselves, the Russian authorities and most of the wider world believed the cult members needed saving from themselves and the cave they dug themselves into. Specially trained negotiators on the scene tried to talk with the cult members through a ventilation shaft, but failed. The Russian Orthodox Church sent priests and monks to try and coax the group out of the cave. The representative of the Penza diocese, Father Alexei Bertsev, also visited the cave. The priest proved unable to persuade the cult members to come out. The cult members proclaimed that, unlike the Russian Orthodox priests, they were the true Russian Orthodox Christians who were waiting for the Lord to come in his glory and put an end to lawlessness. The Archbishop of the districts of Penza and Kuznetsk Filariet prayed for the health and comfort of the misguided souls. Russian news agency Itar Tas quoted the Archbishop, Only prayer and persuasion, 
other methods must not be used. We want these people not only to calm down, but to understand us, and we are calling on them to return to God's sanctuary, to normal Christian life. We are patient and we will wait until May if necessary." End quote. The Russian Orthodox Church has traditionally been harsh on splinter groups, but in this case was showing a high degree of compassion and patience. The reason? There were four children inside the homemade cave, including an 18-month-old baby. Temperatures inside the cave were dropping below 54 degrees Fahrenheit, so the situation was becoming dire, according to Itar Tas. None of the authorities knew the exact condition of the apocalypse bunker, but they assumed the worst. All the negotiators tried to persuade the cult members to accept food, medicine, and hot water to bathe the children, but their aid was refused. The cult continued to make international news. The 29 Russian cult members might be expecting the end of the world next spring, but the end of the negotiations to get them out of their cave by Russian officials is hoped to come sooner than that. The standoff between the two in the village of Nikoskoye is in its third full day, but officials say talks are still ongoing. While the cult members suffered underground, where was their leader, Pyotr Kuznetsov? On November 22, 2007, Kuznetsov, two women from Belarus, and three children locked themselves in the house their cult had been living in. Kuznetsov had decided to stay behind to wait for those followers who were late to join the others in the cave. He told his followers that he had another preordained destiny. Kuznetsov staying out of the uncomfortable cave while urging his followers to hide there is a classic marker of a cult. The leader enjoys privileges that the cult members do not. As a prophet of God, he could claim it was part of the plan. While he wasn't in the cave, it was reported that Kuznetsov and the others in the house spent time in a different enclosed space. Apparently, they engaged in the macabre practice of alternating sleeping inside a pine wood coffin. Perhaps the coffin was their way of preparing themselves for what they thought was the inevitable end of the world. Once they realized where he was, law enforcement came to the house Kuznetsov was hiding in and demanded the names of the people who had gone underground. When Kuznetsov refused to offer up his followers' names, he was arrested. Few of the cult members were ever identified publicly, but some were identified by their family members, who, by late 2007, were desperate to contact and communicate with them. A Belarusian woman, Anna Vabishevich, said that her 41-year-old son Alexander and his wife and two teenage daughters had joined the cult. Anna sent two relatives to Nikolskoya to try and persuade her son to at least send his daughters home. When interviewed on November 22, 2007, she sobbed while trying to explain that her son Alexander was a railway worker and had come under the influence of Kuznetsov several years back. He stopped eating food packaged with the universal product code, which the cult regards as the mark of the Antichrist. She said, quote, My son was kind, and now he is mentally ill. It's like he is hypnotized. End quote. Hypnotized or not, the authorities realized Kuznetsov held the most power over the cult members hiding in the cave. If they wanted to get the cult members out, they needed Kuznetsov's help. So the authorities enlisted Kuznetsov, whom they'd taken into custody, to try and convince his followers to come out voluntarily. The cave dwellers exchanged letters through the ventilation shaft with Kuznetsov, but didn't trust him anymore. Here's the almost impossible-to-believe truth. The cult members disobeyed their leader. Regional administrative spokesman Yevgeny Gusenov said, quote, They believe that he is acting under the influence of the Russian government. 
They still respect him, they listen to him, but they don't trust him as they believe he is acting under pressure from the authorities, end quote. How could cult members abandon their leader, especially after believing that he was the ultimate authority both spiritually and morally? The cultural context is so important here. Remember the complex relationship between the Soviet Union and the Russian Orthodox Church? After World War II, Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev's regime implemented psychological warfare on the Russian Orthodox Church members. KGB agents were sent to infiltrate the most prominent activist communities and turn the Russian Orthodox Church into a useful, manipulative tool for the regime. This Soviet tactic of identifying dissidents, repressing their ideas, re-educating and eventually returning them back to their communities with a new state-sanctioned message was commonplace. So when the true Russian Orthodox Church suspected that their leader was being manipulated by authorities, they had these examples from the past to draw on to justify their distrust. That's a great insight into what could have been going on through the minds of Kuznetsov's followers. Kuznetsov furthermore made the mistake of promising his believers that they would become religious leaders in the post-apocalyptic world, beginning on May 28, 2008. Perhaps they took matters into their own hands now that Kuznetsov was no longer physically with them. They didn't need their leader because they were the leaders. Around this time, Vitaly Nidagon became the de facto leader, once the cult members split off from Kuznetsov, after they came to the conclusion that Kuznetsov had been coerced by the authorities. Even though he was abandoned by his own cult members, Kuznetsov was charged with setting up a religious organization associated with violence. While most of the cult was still underground, Kuznetsov was sent to a psychiatric hospital in Pensa. He underwent psychiatric evaluation and was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. And now let's continue our story. Pyotr Kuznetsov's diagnosis of paranoid schizophrenia had no effect on his followers' beliefs. On December 7, 2007, the women from Belarus who had been locked in the house with Kuznetsov were deported. One of the women, Valentina Ponedelnik, proclaimed her conviction, saying, quote, The authorities will pay the price for forcing us to leave. You'll see. The government actions will be accounted for. And if the authorities try to evict the people underground, then God will punish them. The biblical prophecy is coming true. The world will soon end. End quote. But to anyone who wasn't already under his spell, Kuznetsov was a problem. On January 30, 2008, Kuznetsov was beaten up by other patients in his ward. The fight reportedly happened at night, and asylum staff had to interfere in order to stop the beating. The Tavoy Den tabloid reported that he was called a devil and taunted for forcing his followers, including four children, to undergo what they assumed was inhumane suffering in the underground cave. In a Russian TV interview while he was staying at the psychiatric hospital, Kuznetsov said, quote, We had the idea of making a big dugout for us all to go to and stay there, just to avoid acts of hooliganism by the local population, end quote. Looking thin, haggard, and with a scrawny beard, Kuznetsov continued to insist that he had not gone into the cave himself because he had to meet others who had yet to arrive. In the same interview, Deputy Director of the State Forensic Psychiatry Center, Zurab Kikleeds, said, quote, I would like to believe that reason will prevail and the people will come out of there, end quote. But reason did not prevail, and the occupation of the apocalypse bunker continued. 
every little incident that happened inside the cave became national news. On February 15, 2008, one of the young girls inside the bunker accidentally dropped a candle during prayer and set the prayer room on fire. The cultists managed to put the fire out, but they refused any emergency services or medical treatment. Local law enforcement had installed microphones at the ventilation holes, so they were alerted to the fire when they heard shouting in the bunker. The citizens of Russia became obsessed with the situation, and many journalists and paparazzi gathered at the site. After nearly four months, on March 6, 2008, contingency plans were put in place to forcibly rescue the cult members in the case of severe flooding due to spring thaws. Regional administration spokesman Yevgeny Gusenov again commented, quote, any special operation that involves the use of force against those people is totally out of the question. If they do come out of the cave, it would only be if they choose to do so voluntarily, end quote. On March 24, 2008, prosecutor of the district, Alevtina Volchkova, told the newspaper Komsomolskaya Pravda that the state was investigating grounds for criminal prosecution of Kuznetsov, even though Kuznetsov was deemed mentally ill. When asked what Kuznetsov would be charged with, she quoted from the first part of Article 239 of the Criminal Code, quote, creation of a religious or voluntary association with the intent to prevent citizens to fulfill their civic duties or to commit unlawful acts, end quote. However, the prosecutor also stated that, quote, the defendant will not be responsible for the crimes he committed when mentally ill. The court has ordered compulsory treatment for him in a psychiatric ward, end quote. Judge Maria Smyslova ruled over Kuznetsov's indictment, deciding to allow the criminal case against Kuznetsov and the cult as a whole to be pursued, built on charges that he incited religious and national hatred. The next day, on March 24th, the police temporarily took Kuznetsov out of the mental hospital and brought him along with him to the cave entrance for the second time, with the intention of using him to coax his followers out. They also brought priests and rescue workers to help. Instead of being receptive to their leader, members of the cult shot at police who approached the cave. An interior ministry official told the Sant newspaper that no police were injured in the shooting, and they had no further comment on how many shots were fired or with what type of weapon. Authorities brought Kuznetsov to the bunker for a third time on March 28, 2008, to coax out seven women from the group who needed emergency medical care. It worked. The women agreed to leave and emerged from the cave. Anton Sharonov from a local press service reported that, quote, Among those who came out, there was a woman with two children, one of them a girl less than two years old, end quote. Kuznetsov was returned to the mental hospital, and his followers received medical treatment. There wasn't evidence to charge the followers who left the cave with any crimes, so once given clear bills of health, they were released from custody. But there was still a group of cult members stubbornly holding out inside the cave, and the weather forecast for the week after predicted rain. And rain it did. Cold gray mud slid down the gully towards the dugout. The slow-moving mudslide, unhampered by the stick-like trees in the surrounding forest, started to overflow into the apocalypse bunker. The cave was in danger of collapsing. A round-the-clock rescue post was activated, with rescue workers checking the condition of the cave every day. Authorities spoke to 82-year-old Antonia, another leader in the group, warning her of the dangers. She assured them that they would come back to the surface soon. 
A spokesperson for the local prosecutor reported, quote, it's possible that the sect members realized that their lives could be in danger if they remained underground. They've had to urgently strengthen the walls of the cave recently, end quote. He also added that large lumps of soil had fallen into the bunker. Three days later, on March 31st, 14 more members of the cult left their confinement after part of the cave collapsed under melting snow, leaving less than a dozen stalwarts still underground. After questioning by local police, the cult members who emerged were allowed to return to normal life. News of this must have hit Kuznetsov hard. Authorities seemed to gloat over what seemed to be a surefire victory and progression to ending the entire situation. Regional administration spokesman Yevgeny Guzenov told CNN about the erstwhile cult leader, quote, I've met the man and he's mentally sick big time, end quote. Kuznetsov must have realized that his prediction of the end of the world was wrong. On April 3rd, 2008, a month out from his predicted doomsday date, Kuznetsov attempted suicide by smashing his own head between a tree stump and a log of wood. The head of the intensive care unit of Penza Regional Hospital, Andrei Progresov, stated, quote, We hopefully will be able to make the patient able to testify, but for now I cannot comment on what mental abnormalities he will have. End quote. Despite suffering severe brain trauma and with his previous diagnosis of paranoid schizophrenia, the doctors believed he might recover sufficiently in order to stand trial. Kuznetsov underwent an operation for severe wounds and was unconscious for a week. After the news of her cult leader's suicide attempt, a cult member who called herself God's Slave Nina was seen weeping outside Kuznetsov's prayer house. It is unknown if she was one of the women that had lived with Kuznetsov above ground or one of his followers who had emerged early from the cave. In either case, Nina had not lost faith, actually claiming that Kuznetsov had died and then been resurrected. After visiting Kuznetsov in the hospital, Nina announced to the press that Pyotr is reborn. Oleg Melnichenko, vice governor of the Penza region, said that when the news of Kuznetsov's attempted suicide was given to the cult members in the cave, quote, they said they aren't ready to make decisions and have vowed to stay silent. They probably perceived the suicide attempt of their leader as a kind of sign, end quote. On April 14th, the Penza region's governor, Vasily Bochkarev, reported that, quote, the hermits initiated talks with rescue workers themselves. They said they were running low on water and asked to be given water. As far as I know, they did not request for further assistance, end quote. So there was nothing the Russian police could do. The remaining cult members, now numbering about 25, refused to come out of the cave. They were bunkered in while they waited for the end of the world. As months crawled by and no apocalypse came, the cult members who were left inside the bunker announced that they would emerge on April 27th, the Orthodox Easter, or during Russia's May 1st through 9th national holidays, or June 14th, the Day of Holy Trinity. But nature had her way with the cult members twice. First on April 23rd, as heavy rains partially destroyed the entrance to the cave. An emergency services official stated, quote, Rescuers have dug special drainage ditches to prevent thaw waters from reaching the cave. If need arises, rescue workers will come to the site again to carry out any necessary work, end quote. On April 28th, the cult sent out a communication to authorities. Although they had quoted May 28th as the day of reckoning, the closer and closer the date became, the less certain they became. The cave dwellers wrote that they believed it would happen in April or May, or perhaps as late as June of 2008. 
the members of the cult refused to talk to anyone directly, limiting their communication to the outside world to written notes passed up and down the ventilation shaft. Police were worried and warned curious onlookers to stay away. Quote, it's prohibited to go down into the ravine. Don't even speak loudly. Don't disturb these people, please. It could provoke a tragedy. End quote. Rain came again on May 1st and caused most of the roof of the cave to collapse. The cult members did not resist when police called in rescue workers to save them from the cave-in. When 14 members came out prematurely, emergency official spokesman Dmitry Yeskin said that all were in decent condition. The remaining cult members remained inside, and authorities thought that some could be dead, although at that time there was still no confirmation. Meanwhile, Kuznetsov was readmitted to the psychiatric clinic on May 4, 2008, after completing a month in the intensive care unit in the hospital from his suicide attempt. On May 6, Kuznetsov's religious writings were declared illegal by a Penza region court. Kuznetsov had published several manifestos with print runs of around 17,000 copies, which he used to attract new followers. Maria Orlova, an assistant to the local prosecutor's office, said in a statement, Quote, investigators commissioned a psychological and linguistic analysis of the books confiscated from and earlier published by Pyotr Kuznetsov in November 2007. In the opinion of specialists, the books contain both the latent and overt promotion of religious and racial intolerance. As a result of these findings, charges were brought. End quote. Concerning the pending criminal case, Chief Investigator Rustam Mateev said, Quote, we've questioned all those cult members who left the bunker and are now analyzing the case, but we can't make any decisions until all cult members leave the shelter, end quote. And of course, they could only hope those members came out alive. There was a sign of life on May 8th when the cult members were heard singing psalms through the ventilation shafts. The 11 remaining cave dwellers intended to weather out the rest of the spring in the apocalypse bunker until May 28, 2008, when Piotr told them the world was going to end. But the long-awaited end came sooner than they expected. The end of the cave dwellers' confinement shocked the world on May 16, 2008, when the last nine survivors emerged from the muddy bunker for a horrifying reason. The stench of putrefying corpses drove them out. These nine were the remaining members of the cult that had been in the cave for almost six months. They had to abandon the cave due to the toxic fumes created by the rotting bodies of two cult members who had died inside the bunker. <coughs> Local official Vladimir Pravatorov reported to Ria Novosti that, quote, we could still smell the stench through ventilation holes. There was a real threat of poisoning from toxic corpse fumes. As we pulled out the dead bodies, we suggested the others leave. They agreed, end quote. On May 20, 2008, Governor Melnichenko commented on the aftermath of the cult leaving the cave. Quote, The decision to destroy the cave was taken following the conclusion of the working group that was formed last November to resolve the situation with the cult members. This decision was primarily due to the fact that the cave is dangerous, both for the local population and for the curious. Now the restrictions to the site will be removed and access will be allowed. The local authorities have done this in order to provide security for the population. End quote. The cave was demolished with two controlled explosions. On May 21st, Governor Melnichenko announced the results of the investigation into the deaths of two cult members who were buried in the cave. One woman had died naturally of cancer. 
The other had died of malnourishment caused by extended fasting. Now, for the first time, the world could see taped evidence of the bunker, which was broadcast on Russian TV. The video revealed just how unfit for habitation it was, the dark, damp tunnel and the cramped, unsanitary cells where the 35 or so cult members waited for the apocalypse seemed like hell on earth. A Reuters reporter crawled down into the abandoned bunker and found the makeshift kitchen with the well for drinking water right next to the toilet. He noticed that belongings were left behind, like a chess set and pages from a children's book. Someone had carved large images of flowers and plants on the walls, and in some places, cardboard pieces covered the floor. The religious altar with its orthodox cross was right next to the spot in the ground where the two women had been buried. One ex-cult member named Olga agreed to be interviewed on camera about her experience in the bunker. She said, quote, There was a lack of fresh air in the cave, of course. We missed the sunshine, birds singing, and nature in general, end quote. Somehow this experience did not destroy the cult members' faith in God. On June 11, 2008, Penza Regional Investigation Department spokesman Alexei Shotsky told Interfax, quote, A resolution has been signed today to refer the criminal case to a court and seek forced medical treatment for Pyotr Kuznetsov. Investigators have established that Kuznetsov incited hatred and organized an association that infringed on citizens' rights. The case has been referred to Bekovo District Court at Kuznetsov's place of residence. End quote. On July 15, 2008, the first court sessions were scheduled to take place, but the court then decided that Kuznetsov was too mentally and physically ill to attend the hearings and switched its session to a conventional courtroom. The day after this ruling, judicial spokeswoman Natalia Bishenkova said, quote, The court announced a break to grant the accused medical assistance. Doctors carried out an examination of him and came to the conclusion that the further participation of Kuznetsov would be inadvisable due to his health, end quote. Although the cult leader had been declared legally insane, the court attempted to determine his mental state at the time he ordered his followers to go underground. Since two of his followers died, Kuznetsov was tried in a criminal court, even with the insanity plea. The judge needed to determine whether Kuznetsov was mentally ill during the time period when he was leading the cult. Although the judge found him guilty for the deaths of his followers, he wasn't sentenced to prison due to his mental illness. Instead, he was ordered to undergo compulsory treatment. After the end of the cult leader's trial, many wondered about the mental state of his followers. Alexander Ilatontsev, a friend of one of the cult members, said, quote, They will live on their own as they consider they are living out their last days. End quote. Reporters managed to interview another one of the cult members, Valentina, who was 15 years old. She insisted, quote, The prophet will be resurrected and the good will live in a world of light. End quote. She then continued to draw water from a stream nearby Kuznetsov's old prayer house, where ten cultists, eight women and two children, lived together. The house had a large wooden Orthodox cross on the roof and crosses drawn in chalk on its doors. A skinny, dirty white kitten, who was the only pet in the cave, ran in and out of the yard as five riot policemen kept throngs of journalists at bay. As the days went on and the apocalypse did not arrive, the cult members had to emerge from their ramshackle houses eventually, covering their faces with Bibles or their hands. Journalists mobbed them, trying to take their photographs. 
Finally, the mainly female cult members, dressed mostly in black, long skirts and headscarves, address the gathered press. Quote, There is no need to teach us. We can confirm every word by the scriptures. The end of the world is coming, though it might take three more years for it to finally die. End quote. The remaining cult member's spokeswoman, identified only as Natasha, a middle-aged woman, said, quote, Gas, electricity, and tax numbers are all evil. Seek salvation in the Bible. End quote. The last few cult members had not changed their minds about modernity or the impending end of the world. When local social services officials brought food and drink to the house, cult members refused all packaged items with barcodes. The cult also refused to plant any crops as they did not expect to be around for the harvest, so the local government provided them with a cow to help them support themselves. This action irritated residents in the poor farming village of Nikolskoye, where half of the 20 or so houses are deserted. Roads are just dirt trails and most people survive on what they can grow themselves. Tatiana Alenikova, a farmer who lived nearby the cult house, sarcastically commented, quote, We should all go underground, then we might get a cow, end quote. As far as any news outlet has reported, the stragglers from the true Russian Orthodox Church still live there to this day. Incredibly, even after everything that had happened, these few cult members held on to their beliefs. Do we know why they still believed? Although it's a guess, ascribing the final judgment day to a message from a prophet of God removes a cult member from having to worry about individual responsibilities in life. Cult members could romanticize the end of days where people would be living simply, where they could go back to nature and be purified by their religious rituals. And they could do that with or without Kuznetsov. Perhaps the only thing that changed in them during those months in the cave was that they no longer cared for their leader— during Kuznetsov's trial, the remaining members of his cult were called as witnesses, but according to record, they did not appear at the court session. And what about Pyotr Kuznetsov? Is he still in a mental institution? Well, as of May 7, 2011, a court in central Russia turned down a request to end the compulsory psychiatric treatment of Kuznetsov. The Russian prosecutor general's office released a statement. Quote, a district court in Penza region rejected a request by a chief doctor of the Penza Psychiatric Hospital to replace Kuznetsov's compulsory psychiatric treatment with outpatient treatment. End quote. As far as we know, he's still there under involuntary psychiatric care. In December 2012, pro-Kremlin analyst Sergei Markov went on record to say, quote, Feeling spiritually hungry, people create their own tiny islands of survival. The government is aware of the issue, but has no concrete plan of persecuting the cult leaders." End quote. Although this was the case back then, the policy must have changed recently as Russian authorities have started to aggressively crack down on cults who use social media to advocate joining splinter religious groups, using the courts to ban those they consider the most dangerous. Although a bigger tragedy could have occurred in the case of the true Russian Orthodox Church, the dangers of doomsday cults should not be ignored. Since the beginning of organized religion, end times proclamations have come and gone, some with spectacularly disastrous results for their members, including those who suffered and died in a cave dug by the true Russian Orthodox Church. Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. 
If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Cults, you can find them on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. As always, we thank you for listening. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Joel Stein and Carrie Murphy. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire, Carly Madden, and Jeanette Manning. Cults is written by Nari An and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. <laughs>